Hebrews chapter 13 is where we'll be today in a message that I'm calling One Love, One Love, Money, or the Messiah. One Love, Money, or the Messiah. These verses that we find ourselves in, verses 1 through 6, really hang together as one paragraph, and they, they flow out of 12 chapters of theology where Jesus has been presented to us as better than any rival Savior. He gives us access to God. He cleanses our sins. He gives us a clean conscience. So why would we chase after anything else other than Jesus, even when the world is persecuting us? Even when it's getting hard to follow Jesus, we should fix our eyes on Him and the the heavenly city, the Mount Zion, the Jerusalem that await those who belong to Christ. And, And as we do that, we've been called to show the world that we have a real living hope by living lives that are well-pleasing to our King, even when our King and His people are assaulted for their faithfulness to Jesus. And over the last two weeks, we've seen that living a life that's well-pleasing to God means loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verses 1-3, through how do we love? We love selflessly. We, We lay down our lives for the good of our brothers and sisters, even in the midst of difficult and challenging circumstances. It means not caving to culture on the meaning of marriage and the use of the marriage bed, as we saw in verse 4. It means honoring marriage as a picture of the relationship of Jesus and the church, such that husbands endeavor to be godly men and godly husbands and godly fathers, and that wives endeavor to be godly women and wives and mothers. We've learned that in all these things, a life that is well-pleasing to God flows from a selflessness that can only come from God. You see, when you really get saved, the Holy Spirit takes the love of Jesus that is demonstrated on the way to the cross, the selflessness of Jesus in obedience to His Father, and He applies it to your heart. He changes your heart. And He he doesn't give you a sentimental love or a love that's just nice on the outside, but a love that is really willing, like Jesus, to sacrifice oneself for the good of one's neighbor. This self-giving love by which we are saved now flows from us outward to others as we relate to one another, our brothers and sisters, as we relate in marriage to our husbands or to our, to our wife. And, and now we see in verse 5 and 6 that it also flows out of us in how we relate to our money. Would you hear with me the Word of God? Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? I want to show you three truths from these two verses. To live a life that is well-pleasing to God, which is the unifying theme of of verses 1-6. through To live a life that is well-pleasing to God, first, we must make sure that our character is is free from the love of money. Now, what's fascinating to me about the context of this book and and reading these verses is that the people who are receiving this letter for the first time have already suffered financial setback for following Jesus. In chapter 10, verse 34, we learn that they accepted joyfully the seizure of their property, knowing that they have for themselves a better possession and a lasting one, meaning the heavenly Jerusalem, that we get King Jesus. People who have received everlasting life are called to face adversity in this life, how? By maintaining an eternal perspective. The author understands 
that financial pressure can send us down a road of trading our eternal hope for temporary relief. Have, have any of you ever faced financial pressure? Oh, it's just me. Okay. Never, never, never had some tough decisions to make. Never looked at the bank account and wondered, what am I going to do? How is this all going to work out? And felt that pressure welling up within and that, that pressure and desire to maybe compromise just a little bit. Maybe just this week. Maybe just this month. This tendency of financial pressure leads us to compromise our values even and our convictions to have more money and more security in the here and now, forgetting that our real security is secured by the blood of Jesus for forever. Despite the financial hardship of the people receiving this letter, the author does not say, listen, he doesn't say adopt a bunker mentality and keep everything you can in your basement, in your attic. Store up what you can now and have your best life now. He doesn't say that. Instead, he warns them. People who are struggling financially, he warns them, make sure your character is free from the love of money. That's fascinating to me. As Jesus says, no, can you hear the words of Jesus echoing in this? Luke 16, 13. Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth or God and money. It's a binary choice. It's either on or off. You are either in love with money or you are in love with Jesus. It cannot be both. The love of money is dangerous, church. It is so dangerous. It is so easy to rationalize. I just need a little more money, and then everything will be okay. And then you get a little more money, and what do you say? I just need a little more money, and then everything will be okay. And then you get that little bit more money, and then you say, I just need a little more money, and everything will be okay. And then sadly, many draw their last breath, still looking for that next dollar never seeing the beauty of the King. When we stand before Jesus, the Maker of heaven and earth, the King of a kingdom with matchless beauty and in unbelievable infinite wealth, when we see that, we will clearly see how foolish the love of money is, but for many, it's going to be too late. We must keep our eyes on our beautiful King today, even when it costs us to stand for Him, so that tomorrow, when He comes, we can stand before Him unashamed. As Paul says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Listen to this. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. You'll compromise in countless ways to get another dollar. For some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. Because money won't satisfy the soul, only the Messiah can. In verse 5, the word character, you make sure that you keep your character free from the love of money. Character means the totality of who you are. It means your manner of life, your way of being. As Christians, the Bible is telling us that who we are must be governed not by a love of money, but by a love of Jesus your life governed by your love for Christ? My, my concern this morning is that many people who say they love Jesus are really lovers of money. 
in my own research on this topic, I used to, to consult with churches, large and small, on the issue of financial stewardship. I had the privilege of consulting for, for a very large and successful church, and they, they brought me in and to do an analysis, and what I discovered was that 40% of their regular attenders gave nothing to their local church in a year's time. 40% of their regular attenders gave zero in a year's time. That, that's goose egg, nada, zilcho, zip. Titus 1.16a tells us about this. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. If we've received the love of a self-giving God, we're going to be givers. They profess a love for God, but their God is actually accumulating wealth and the comfort of the world. So how do you know if you're trapped by the love of money? This is a serious indictment. It's a binary choice. You either love money or you love Jesus. How do you know? Am I, am I a lover of money or do I love Jesus? Because i got to have money to live. I mean, it's not bad. Money's not bad, but the love of money's bad. So what am I? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. I have been meditating on this, um, not just for this week, but really for about the last 15 years as I've pondered this subject. And I've got some, some propositions. You, you might remember jo- uh, the Foxworthy jokes. You might be a redneck if. You know, um, I don't remember any of the good ones. I just remember when he said, get the car key out of your ear and listen. But... Um, you, you might be a lover of money if. if. If you focus more on your financial position than your spiritual condition, you might be a lover of money. If you spent more time checking the stock market this week than checking out God's Word, you might be a lover of money. If you think being generous is something that you can delay until you have more money, you might be a lover of money. If you're staying in a job that you hate, loathe, and detest because the money is great, you might be a lover of money. If you are working endless hours to get more stuff while your marriage and your ministry in the church are suffering, you might be a lover of money. If you're living in a house or riding around in a car that keeps you captive to budget-crushing payments, that prevents you from being generous, you might be a lover of money. If you receive an increase in your pay or pension or disability or social security, and the last thing you think about is increasing your support of God's mission through His church, you might be a lover of money. If you justify not giving your treasure because you gave your time or your talent, you might be a lover of money. If you think of money as something that you earned and you deserve so you get to keep it rather than as a gift from God to be used for Him and His glory, you might be a lover of money. Paul says this, what do you have that you did not receive? It's a rhetorical question, right? What's the answer? Absolutely nothing. The very life that I have is from God. The very breath that I have is from God. The hands that I have to work, the computer that I own, the the fingers that make keystrokes as I study a message, the ingenuity that I have, the creativity that I have, it is all a gift from God. And so Paul says, why do you boast as if you had not received it? 
When you love money, church, you will sacrifice to have more of it. And when you love Jesus, you will sacrifice to have more of Him. Those who love Jesus are in a process of becoming more like Jesus. And you are never more like Jesus than when you give. Selfless, sacrificial, and joy-filled giving is the essence of God's love for us in Christ. And it must be the essence of our love for God. Otherwise, your love for Jesus, which is professed, is only an illusion. How do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Verses 1-3. through three, We give ourselves to them. We give, our, we give the benefit of the doubt. We give our humble confession. We give preference. We give forgiveness. How do we love our spouse? We give our very selves in the deepest and most profound ways that are humanly possible. How then do we love Jesus? We give. In a world that says, cling to your money, Christians are called to make sure our money does not have a hold on our hearts. God has given us a way to be free from the love of money. We've got to learn to become generous givers for the glory of our King. I I once heard a Christian say this, I like to give away money when it is still warm in my hands, otherwise my heart grows cold. As we progress in our marriages, what do we do each anniversary milestone? Don't we try to do a little bit more, right? The first anniversary is what? The paper anniversary. But what is the 50th anniversary? It's the gold anniversary. There's, there's this sig- signifying of the enduring and ever-deepening love that we have for our spouse with each anniversary milestone. How much more should we want to express through our generous giving and ever-deepening and growing love for Jesus the Bridegroom. Is your lover, is your love deeper and stronger and filled with ever more gratitude than at the start? Does your giving and your attitude toward giving reveal a heart of gratitude for Jesus and a craving less of money and more of His presence? The truth is, stinginess does, just doesn't make sense. It is only what we give and leverage for the glory of Jesus that we truly never lose. I've been blessed down through the years to know Christians with almost nothing in this world who have been some of the most generous people I've ever met. Clipping coupons, planning and preparing meals at home, shopping at Goodwill, somehow miraculously extending the life of that old car for one more year, doing whatever they can so that they cannot be one who neglects to treasure Christ first and invest in His kingdom. I've also been blessed to know Christians who just have a special God-given ability to make money. And in my flesh, those people make me sick. I'm just going to be honest there. They're disgusting. Some of you are like, can't believe you said that. It's, it's true. But you know what I've found in some of these men and women? They understand where the gift came from. And they wake up every morning not trying to make more money for themselves, but to find another way to anoint the Savior's feet with the costly oil like the woman who anointed the feet of Jesus with her last best gift. 
They are pouring their treasures into God's kingdom, not to impress people with their gifts, not to have the best seat in the house, but because their hearts are overflowing with gratitude for Jesus. And here's the truth, church. Whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in between, Hebrews 13.5 is for the entire church. And it is a reminder, we must not let the pressures of this world turn us into worshipers and lovers of money. Instead, we must grow in our love for Jesus and in our longing for His return. So here's a question for each of us. Are you serving God or are you serving money? Are you more motivated by growing your portfolio or by growing your passion for Jesus? Is the, if the Spirit, not this preacher, but if the Spirit of God is, is convicting you in this area of love of money, there's one of four applications and perhaps multiple that He might have for you this morning. The first would be start giving. In a, in a congregation this size, and for those online, I know there's some who, who are listening who either haven't supported a local church in a long time, or they've never supported a local church in I'm not going to say start at 10%. I'm going to say just get started and watch what God's going to do in your heart. Just get started. Just begin. Secondly, all of us could probably evaluate where we are and ask God to convict us where we need to be convicted if that is indeed an issue in our lives. Thirdly, maybe increase your giving. Maybe God is saying, look, you've been stuck on an amount or a percentage for a decade. Why? You've had eight raises in ten years and you're still stuck on the same amount. Why, why is that? Why is there no growth in your love for God as expressed in your relationship with money? And finally, maybe God is calling you to make a crazy once-in-a-lifetime gift like the woman who anointed the Savior's feet with oil. You remember the alabaster flask of oil, right? It had sentimental value. It had tremendous uh, financial value. And what did she do? When she recognized who Jesus was, she broke open that vial of oil and she anointed her Savior's feet with it. Maybe there's some property that you have. Maybe there's some account that's out there somewhere that has no relevance or bearing really on your retirement. Maybe God is saying, look, it's time to let that asset go for the glory of of God and watch what I'm going to do in your life and in your church and in the kingdom as you release your treasures as a demonstration of love for Christ who is greater than all other treasures. But here's the deal. I can give you all the tips and pragmatics and statistics, but at the end of the day, we'll never get beyond the love of money unless we are satisfied by Jesus, which is the second point. We've got to be content with what and who we have. Do you see that in the second half? Of verse 5, we get Jesus. Be content with what you have. Have you noticed that our advertising and our politics is driven by the reality or the assumption that people are not content with what they have? Advertisers tell us, what do they tell us? You deserve our product. Your car is not good enough. You need a newer car with this new gadget and this new thing. Your phone isn't good enough because it's an iPhone 8 and you need a 10 or an 11 or 12 or 17 or whatever version is out yet. Your computer isn't enough because it hasn't been upgraded in the last five minutes. Your house isn't good enough because it's in the wrong neighborhood. It's on the wrong side of the tracks or it's this or that and you need this better feature Whatever we have, it isn't ever enough, according to the world. We need, we must have, we deserve an upgrade. 
But as believers, we understand the upgrade that we long for is one we've already been given in Christ. We see material wealth and money with an eternal perspective. It isn't something we must have and must accumulate. It's simply a tool to be used for the glory of Christ. We understand that these are gifts from a good God. Yes, to help us have our daily bread, but even more importantly, to give us a way to show the watching world in a tangible way that Jesus is our true bread who came down from heaven and satisfies in a way that nothing else can. As Schreiner writes, part of what it means to be devoted to the city of God rather than the city of man is to be content with what God has given and to give Him thanks and praise every day for the gifts that He has granted. For the Christian, every day is Thanksgiving Day. Hebrews 13.5 is clear. Those who are the children of God and citizens of His kingdom must be content with what we have. We are not content if we are constantly grumbling and complaining about our finances or coveting what someone else has. We are not content if we are constantly thinking about ways we do not have, excuse me, things we do not have or things we can't get, which won't last to eternity anyway. And that's the key in verse 5. We've got to keep on being content with what we have, what we are having at hand. It's an interesting way of phrasing it because the word having is in the present tense. Be content with what you currently have. Have What do you currently have that will never fade, that you will keep on having forever? If you belong to Jesus, it's not your money, right? It's Jesus. Be content with what you presently have and will always have, and that which we will always, always have is Jesus. The market will rise and fall, but the Messiah is Lord over all. Because we are in Christ, we know God's promise to never leave us or forsake us is more than enough. No matter how severe the persecution or the pressure, no matter how desperate our circumstances, if we have Jesus and nothing else, we have everything. It's only Jesus who will never forsake you. Your money will forsake you. On your last day, it doesn't matter how much money you have. The question is, Are you a lover of money or a lover of Jesus? It is only Jesus who will never, ever forsake you. It's the double negative. In the Greek language, they can use double negatives. It's not not breaking a grammatical rule. Some of you English teachers, you can't use a double negative. Well, in the Greek, you can. And it's a way of being super emphatic. God tells us that He will no, never leave us. Not ever, never gonna happen. Can't do it. It's not revocable. When you come to Christ and turn from your sin and trust in Him and He saves you, He saves you forever and He produces within your heart a self-giving love that grows until the day that you meet Him. If we belong to Jesus, we have a share in the promise of the ongoing presence of God. Jesus is the greater Joshua. He does not just lead us out of the wilderness and into the promised land, but out of the land of sin and death and destruction and into the forever kingdom of God where we find true rest, Hebrews 4.8. Rest from what? Rest from our striving. Rest from our worry. Rest from our need for more. Rest from our pursuit of the illusion of financial security. Why? Because we've found security in Christ alone. When we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, 
and find our place in His mission, we discover that the presence of Jesus is more satisfying and more glorious than any of the world's presence. Do you believe that? That anything in this world that anyone could give you, as meaningful as it might be, as great as it might be, that it's nothing compared to knowing Jesus. Do you remember the story in the Scriptures where Jesus compares having the kingdom of God to to finding treasure in a field. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Jesus tells about a man who comes upon a field, and it's just an old field. People walk by it all the time. Nobody cares about the field. And one guy goes into the field, and in the field he finds a treasure. The treasure isn't described for us. It doesn't matter. But it's a treasure that gives him great joy. And because of the joy that he has in beholding this treasure, do you remember what he does? He goes and he sells everything that he owns to buy a field that people think is worthless so that he can have that treasure that's in that field that brings him such joy. That's what Jesus does to our hearts, church. We're in a world, people people look at us and they're like, why do you live that way? Why do you live selflessly? Why do you give tithes and offerings? Why do you... Why are you generous to other people? It doesn't make sense to me. Why don't you want to accumulate and grab and heap up treasures for yourself and have more and more and more? Why don't you care about that? And the reason is because you're walking by my life and to you it looks like just this plain, normal, boring field. But what I have is what you still can't see. I've got a treasure. And it's the presence of Jesus that gives me such joy that I am willing to live in this way. Do you know the satisfying presence of Jesus? And if you do, it's great to have Him, but it's even better to rely on Him. I love what we read in verse 6. Do you see it? We can confidently say, because we have Jesus on our side, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me. What are you facing this morning that you're tempted to forget that God is in the midst wanting to help you? The author of Hebrews understands the love of money and an overall failure to live selflessly often comes from our fear. What are you afraid of this morning? Is it the unknown in a period of COVID? Is it the, the fear of man in your workplace? Is it the fear of hunger and of hardship. Remember, the Hebrews are being persecuted for their faith. Some have been in prison. Some have lost their jobs and had their property taken. And the author of Hebrews says, watch out for the love of money. Don't skimp on tithes and offerings. Don't ignore the church and your convictions to keep a job. Even though that might seem like a good idea. Why? Because Jesus will help you all the way to the end. So Hebrews reminds us that if we belong to Christ, who's never, ever, not ever going to leave us or forsake us, we don't have a reason to fear because man can do nothing to us that God hasn't already overcome. I mean, what are they going to do? Kill me? I'm going to be raised from the dead when Christ returns. Take my life, take my last penny, take whatever you want. I still have Jesus. As a result, we say, not timidly, notice, but we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. 
Jesus will be our helper on the last day, and He is our helper in this day. The joy of the Christian life is not found in defending our stuff, but in depending upon the Lord. In verse 6, Hebrews quotes from Psalm 118, which is a psalm, interestingly, about Jesus, the coming Messiah. The Messiah also said, the Lord is my helper I will not be afraid. When did he do that? He did that for his whole public ministry when he knew he was on the way to the cross. Psalm 118 tells us the Messiah was surrounded by enemies who threatened to destroy him, but the Lord his Father gave him victory over his foes and he sings to God for his goodness and his deliverance. So why does the author of Hebrews use a psalm about Jesus and apply it to the church? Here's the reason. When you are saved by Jesus, you get the same sort of love and tenacity of Jesus. Jesus is the one who came and obeyed in the power of the Spirit through the cross, trusting that God would raise Him from the dead. So, so also, we don't have to fear our enemies. We don't have to fear financial hardship or imprisonment or anything else that threatens our mortal lives because Jesus has already conquered death for us. Our endurance is in Jesus, it's from Jesus, it's for Jesus, it's towards Jesus, and Jesus will not fail you even if you die for Him. Church, we can be selfless. We can be selfless with one another, we can be selfless in our marriages, and we can be selfless with God's money. Even in times of pressure and persecution, and even when faced with a national election with tremendous implications for the future, Why can we do that? Because we belong to Jesus. When Jesus ascended to the heavens, do you remember what He did? He told us He was going to send us a helper. And the Father and the Son together sent the Spirit as a helper, John 14, 16, and 17. Why? To abide with us and remind us of God's Word when we were tempted to stray from Christ, to bring back into our remembrance the Word of God and to witness to us of our union with Christ so that we would have His power and His presence and His perspective in our circumstances. Our confidence, church, does not come from the economy. Our confidence does not come, Lord knows, from the government. Our confidence does not come from our charm or our intellect or our health or our abilities. Our confidence comes from knowing the presence of the Lord, our Helper. Do you know the joy of being on Team Jesus? Do you know that you know that you know that Jesus is on your side? If you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Him, if you're addicted to the love of money or the love of any other pursuit that is less than Christ, then let today be the day that you turn from idolatry and trust in Christ the King and know what it's like to be able to confidently say, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we give you praise. We give you praise for your presence in this place. We give you praise for your presence in the lives of those who know you and trust you and belong to you. And God, we confess to you how easy it is for the love of money to creep up inside of our minds and in our, in our hearts. God, I pray in a fresh way that you would release us to be a generous people. God, that we, we would not be satisfied 
with the generosity of the past, but God, that we would see our resources as you see them, as an avenue, as a conduit to, to know you more. Because God, your generosity had no limit. You gave us all that you are and all that you had so that we who were far from God could be brought near through the blood of Jesus. You sent your one and only Son to take our place. And God, we live in a world that is broken and desperate for people who live like they really believe that Jesus is enough. That He's better than all the rival saviors. So God, I pray in in North Roanoke Baptist Church, God, that this would be a place, that this would be a people where the world has to stand back and say, they are a Jesus people. They are all about the Son of God, no matter what it costs them, because they are confident in the Lord their Helper. God, if there's anyone here today or listening online who doesn't have that confidence, God, give them the the courage. Holy Spirit of God, move them to step out and to turn from their sin and trust in you. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.